Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are glad that you are with us today. It is good to see people on this holiday weekend. We have visitors here with us. Visitors, you are very welcome. I hope you'll spend a little bit of time with us right after this worship service and uh, before our Bible class. We'll have some coffee, possibly some carbohydrates. Not that you need any extra carbohydrates this weekend, but they'll be back there probably. So we are looking at the story of Jesus, the big story. Everything in the Bible really comes to a focus in the life of Jesus and what that means for us. And today, we're going to focus on one of the claims that Scripture makes, that Jesus is tempted just like we are, yet without sin. Uh, a few years back, there was a, a meme that caught my attention, and it was used in a whole bunch of different ways. It wasn't really used all that religiously. Uh, but the meme was, not today, Satan. You guys remember that meme? Not today, Satan. I liked it because people applied it to all kinds of situations, to work, to family, uh, to diet, all kinds of things. And what that tells me is that human beings know Whatever they say they believe, whatever, you know, they profess, in their heart of hearts, all human beings know that we are in a struggle to do the right thing, and it's not easy to do it. All human beings, they may call it different things, but all human beings know we are in a struggle against temptation. To be human is to be tempted. And sadly, to be human is usually to fall prey to temptation far too often. Now what we've learned about Jesus as we've gone through this study is that Jesus, equal with God, creator of all that we see around us, creator of these bodies that we have, chose to take on one of these bodies and to become human. And when he did that, he took on our temptations. I, you know, there are different theories about Jesus and what Jesus was like, and none of us know really you know, what that could be like. I hope to get a chance to ask him one day. But, but my theory is, as I've gotten older, that Jesus didn't cheat at all. Then when the Bible says he took on flesh, he emptied himself, he took on flesh, that he didn't cheat. That he faced all the temptations, the same kinds of temptations that you and I face. And he met them with the same resources that you and I have at our disposal. It's not like he would face a temptation and shift over and become superhuman, God, in order to defeat the temptation and then come back and be a human again. He faced the temptations as a human being. And I think it's important that he did that. It's important for us to know that he did that. 
And it's also part of what it means for him to be Jesus. Paul says, the first Adam brought sin, and as a consequence of sin, death into the world. The second Adam came, that we could be like him. We've all, Paul says in another place, we've all taken on the image of that first Adam, the man of flesh. And now we are invited to take on the image of the second Adam, who is now the life-giving spirit. And so it matters that Jesus faced these temptations, just like you and me, and he overcame them. In the letter that John wrote to those troubled churches that he was trying to help through a crisis time, 1 John, he says, you know, friendship with the world often makes you an enemy of God. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Often, uh, many commentators have pointed out, he's kind of given you three broad categories of the types of sin there. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the pride of life. A lot of the things that trip us up, a lot of the things that plague us and, and drag us down fall into one of those three categories. And it's interesting that the three temptations of Jesus that he faces in the wilderness right after his anointing as God's king on earth, his baptism, the three temptations that he faces kind of fall into those categories. In Luke's telling, Luke tells it in a different order slightly than Matthew does, but in Luke's telling, it starts like this, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, this is after his anointing by God with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. There's a lot going on in that passage. We've talked about that in previous sermons and in Bible classes here. And many of you know that, that the answers Jesus gives come from the book of Deuteronomy. They kind of are uh, Jesus using the lessons of Israel in the wilderness, the failures of Israel out in the wilderness. Jesus reverses. And where Israel is an unfaithful son to God out there in the wilderness, Jesus is the faithful son. And he, he quotes from Deuteronomy to say the lessons that all of us need to learn. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we know that he's, he's recapitulating Israel's history and fixing it. But for us, this is ordinary physical desire. He was out there for 40 days. He had nothing to eat. 
And maybe one of the greatest understatements in all of human literature, he was hungry. Yeah, I bet he was. And Satan sidles or slithers. I don't know how you imagine Satan moving. Sidles up to him and says, if you really are who the baptism and the Holy Spirit descending on you has led you to think you are. If, then why don't you turn this stone into a lovely warm loaf of bread? Satisfy your physical desire. This is, this is a sample temptation. Luke's very clear. This was not Satan showing up one time at the end of 40 days, three quick temptations, and then he's done. Luke's very clear. This was 40 days of an assault by Satan. Some of you have lived through that kind of an attack by Satan. Where day in and day out, he comes at you from different directions to try and drag you down. That's what this was. It was a crisis time in the life of Jesus as he, using the same resources that you and I have, he's God, but he's taken on humanity. And as a human, he's struggling with, what am I now? God has pronounced me his son. God has anointed me his king in my baptism. The Holy Spirit is on me. What am I? What am I going to be? And he's struggling now with just his physical desires. And that leads us to think about physical temptation. We've all got bodies. And it's interesting, if you survey world religions and you survey world philosophies, there have been a lot of viewpoints that take a very dim view of the body and its desires. In the New Testament world, there were tons of very, very intellectual people who would tell you straight from the mouth of Plato that every physical desire you had was bad just because it was physical. If you want it, if your body wants it, that's good enough to know it's bad for you. That's almost verbatim something that Socrates says on more than one occasion, Socrates being the mouthpiece of Plato. And there are Christian theologians later, people like Augustine or Augustine, who say pretty much the same thing, and they interpret Christianity to say, anything your body wants, you should probably tell it no. Because it's probably dragging you away from godly things and desire. And there are variations on, of that in Eastern philosophy as well. That's a, that's a common theme in some of the religions of India and other places. It's interesting. Our bodily desires can turn into sins. But in order to turn into sins, they have to be twisted and corrupted. Because God made our bodies. 
hearts with the desires they have. The Bible's view is not Plato's view. The Bible's view is that when God formed human bodies, male and female, he looked at them and he said, now that's very good. And he placed them in this world that he had set up for six days to meet those desires. And he said, that's very good. And that is overwhelmingly the view of the Bible. That our desires are good. God gave us these things so we would look at him and say, good job, God. We would enjoy food and we would enjoy the, the beauty around it. And we would enjoy the rain and the sun and all the things he's put in the world. And say, thank you. And take pleasure and joy. And the, the Bible is full of that. that. That God loves it when we love his word. And take care of it. But our bodily desires can drag us down into the muck. They can make us less than. And if we let them, they'll make us even less than that. <laughs> and less than that. And less than that. How can you tell? when your bodily desires are starting to become distorted? Well, two really good tests, there's a bunch, but two really good tests I'll give you for free. Well, I don't know, you can pay me if you want, but, but two for free. I mean, I accept tips, it's fine. Uh, one, when you can sincerely thank God for something you're enjoying, you're doing it right. When you don't want to think about God, when you're doing what you're doing, something is probably twisty about that. That's number one. Can you bring God into this activity? Number two, are you hiding it from people? Is this something you can only do when you got privacy and nobody's looking? If that's happening, that's twisty already. That's corrupted. Something's gone wrong. And you need to think about it, and you need to pray about it, and you need to get back where things need to be. Your body is not bad. God says it's good. And God loves it when you enjoy the good things he's built into this world. Even this fallen world is filled with good things and God likes it when you enjoy them and give him thanks for them. But you got to watch it because sometimes your bodily desires will drag you away from what God built you to be. And Jesus says, human beings do not live by satisfying our bodily desires alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The next temptation, Jesus faced and overcame the lust of the flesh for us. The ne next temptation, Jesus faced and overcame the lust of the eyes. Look at Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. The devil 
led him to a high place, and he showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Can you imagine that? I don't know what that was like. We have movies now, so I guess we kind of we can kind of imagine a montage. You know, there's a little shot of China, a little shot of the uh, Mayan empires, and and Rome, and and whatever was going on in in Germanic countries, and just you know, all the kingdoms of the world, just all of a sudden. And here's Satan's offer. He said to him, "I will give you all their authority." And splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you'll worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is the temptations of the lust of the eye. It's funny, there's a trope that's in movies now. I've seen it in a bunch of different movies. People put on special glasses or, uh, or, or they have a computer screen or in one case they put on Iron Man's helmet and, and all of a sudden when they look at things, you know, a bunch of data pops up, you know, about those things. And, and you may not know this about yourself, but I know this about myself, that I have one of those built in for several different data points that actually matter a lot in this world. Sadly, I have, I have one of those that kind of walks through the parking lot and tells which cars are more expensive than my car. Just like, not that one, not that one, you know? And who's got a better haircut? I'm not looking at anybody, by the way. Whose shirts and suits are better? Whose shoes? You know, we just do that. That's the lust of the eye, folks. That's the lust of the eye. And the world is full of good things, things for us to enjoy. And that's not bad. It becomes lust, it becomes evil, when in one form or another we hear the Satan's offer. All you got to do is worship me. All you got to do is give up your values and I can give you this. All you got to do is lie a little bit more at work. All you got to do is cheat your customers. All you got to do is... Fudge a bit to the IRS. All you got to do, bow down and worship me. Just a little. Who's going to know? And all this can be yours. That's the lust of the eye. How many crimes in the history of humanity have been committed, driven by the lust of the eye? They have it. We want it. Let's go take it. How many? It's a blight on what humanity is meant to be. It's a, it's, 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 
The fall was bad enough, but this is what we've done to pile onto it generation after generation. The crimes that are committed because of the lust of our eyes. And Jesus sees all. He could have everything. He could be the world emperor. All I got to do is compromise with Satan. Bow down, worship me. One time, we're out here alone. Nobody's going to see you. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Not today, Satan. Jesus conquers for us lust of the eye. One more temptation he conquers. In many ways, when we think about temptation, we think about those first two. We think a lot about that first one, lust of the flesh. Those are very immediate. We think about the lust of the eye, greed, which is idolatry. But this last one, boy, it is a killer. Jesus faced and overcame the pride of life. Luke tells the story this way. We could, we could illustrate from other episodes in the life of Jesus. The devil, verse, starting in verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said. Throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up with their hands, and you will not even strike your foot against a stone. Just take a swan dive in the middle of all the worshipers. Everyone will see you up there. The crowds will gather and say, what's he doing? What's up there? And then, when everybody's the most excited, you just dive off the top of the temple. And you hurtle down to that hard pavement below, and right at the last second, angels swoop in and catch you in front of everybody and set you gently on your feet. That's the end to the Pharisees' criticism. That's the end to the Sadducees' opposition. That's the end to even the Romans' power to do anything to you. Angels! You just stand there and soak it all in. Come on. If you're really the Son of God, you could do that. Weird thing is, Jesus, these were all live options. Jesus could have done any of these things. They wouldn't have been tempting otherwise. Jesus again answers from Deuteronomy, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And Luke then records a bit of relief. The devil finished tempting him. He left him until an opportune time. This wasn't the last temptation Jesus faced. Jesus faced and overcame the pride of life. The third category of sin that John mentions, the pride of life. We don't know what made the devil the devil, 
But our best guess is, based on Isaiah and a couple of other passages, our best guess is that it's pride that made the devil the devil. Milton and the Muslims both tell that explicitly, but, you know, we don't trust them as much. (laughs) But Isaiah gives a hint. Pride. There's a story told about Julius Caesar when he is camped up in the up in the Alps, actually, and they see this tiny little village, maybe a hundred, hundred and twenty people, mud streets, and and one of his commanders talks to him and says, "You know, I wonder if in this little tiny village." The, the people vie for best position, you know, like who's going to be chief of this miserable little mud street, mud hut place. Is it just like Rome? I wonder, you know, they got politics and they're conspiring and who's going to displace who? And Julius Caesar, allegedly, according to Suetonius, said, I would rather rule in this place than be the second man in Rome. That's the pride of life, right there. And if you think that the lust of the eye has committed lots of crimes, the pride of life is the one that has killed millions. Millions. The pride of life is what has oppressed So many peoples. The pride of life is what has defrauded so many throughout history. Launched so many wars. It is a curse of our fallen condition, the pride of life. Jesus had to face it. Like he faced all the things that human beings are subject to. Every time I'm asked to take a step back and let somebody else have the spotlight. Every time three people are up for a promotion and someone else gets it. Every time someone is praised and it's not me, there's the pride of life. Hammering at the doors of my soul to be let off the leash and do some damage. And Jesus had to face that too. And he conquered it for you and for me. This was a precious doctrine to the early Christians. The book of Hebrews is actually, we think, written by kind of the second generation of Christians. It's like the first, the missionary generation, and then the people that they converted. We think that's where Hebrews comes from, that second generation of Christians. And the writer of Hebrews says this about This particular facet of the life of Jesus, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we 
do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. For we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus was tested, he was tempted in all the ways that you and I are, yet without sin. And because of that, you and I have confidence to come to the presence of God. Not because we're particularly worthy, but because Jesus is. And in his name to receive forgiveness. I will say that in my younger years, when I would read this passage, I would feel pretty worthless. He was tempted all the same ways I'm tempted. And all the ways in which I fail, he succeeded. You know those bracelets we used to have? What would Jesus do? Doesn't say, what would Jim do? That would be a bad role model. Because I don't succeed. I succeed some, but I don't succeed all the time. So I compare myself with Jesus' perfect record. That could be real depressing. But as I've grown, I've realized that is not what the Bible is trying to tell me in this passage. That is not what the early Christians were trying to believe about Jesus. They didn't see this as a hopeless doctrine. They saw this as a hopeful doctrine. Jesus overcame these temptations not to make us feel unworthy, but to prove to us what we are actually worth. You are God's created human being. You are meant, hear me on this, please church. You are created, you are meant to win victories over Satan. That's what you are meant for. And God knows what you are, and he knows you're not always going to succeed. That's not really even the point. Jesus has succeeded. What's glorious, your glory your stars in your crown is every time Satan sidles or slithers up to you if you think you're a child of God. 
you say, not today, Satan. Every time you do win a victory, that's the glory that Jesus Christ gave us. That Jesus Christ opened up for you and for me. Jesus saved you and gave us this example, not that I'll feel, oh, I can never live up to that. Right, you can't. That's Yes, take that as a given. That's not what this is about. Jesus Christ did this so that tomorrow you will say, not today, Satan. You will win victories that you didn't win yesterday, tomorrow. And the day after that, you will be more prepared. And the day after that, you will be more victorious. And every one of those brings glory to God your Father, the God who made you. That's what this is about. That's why Jesus was tempted just like we are. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son. We thank you so much that he suffered for us. We grieve for his suffering. We grieve for his testing. But we are grateful for his victory because we get to share in it. God, we pray that you will be in our minds and be in our hearts through your spirit so that tomorrow and this next week when we face temptations, we will cling to you and turn away from the works of Satan. God, we want to be holy. We want to be pure. And we know we're going to stumble, but God, we are grateful for your grace. And we want to be better tomorrow than we have been in the past. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you need to respond to God's gracious invitation, if you need prayers or help, if you are ready today to receive baptism, we invite you to come as we stand and are led in song.